0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with two very special guests, Nan Ransahoff and Ryan Orbuck. We're leading the climate initiative at Stripe. Nan Ryan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah,
0: thank you. So, by way of introduction, and Nan, why don't you first take a stab at what is the climate initiative at, at Stripe? And then we, let's talk about how, how you two came to came, came to work on it.
1: Yep, absolutely. Um, so, so as as you know, Ryan and I are leading the climate team at Stripe, and uh, essentially our mission is to figure out how to make it really easy and compelling for our users to help halt climate change. This didn't start with that exact mission, right? So you know, Stripe has had a corporate climate program since 2017. And last year we made this negative emissions commitment, um, announced that back in, in August. And we can talk a little bit more about that, but um, this sort of evolved over time from more of a company focused initiative to one that is really uh, now starting to morph into one much more focused on product and our users.
0: Yeah, let, let's talk about Can you talk about the evolution of how that, that came about?
1: Before talking about kind of Stripes Initiative, I think it's helpful to take a bit of a step back and think about kind of what is the climate problem overall. And when we think about climate change generally, you know, the world emits about 50 gigatons of greenhouse gases every year. And in order to stay within the 1.5 degree uh, temperature target, we need to limit annual emissions to net zero by 2050. We need to get about halfway there by 2030. There are two main levers that we can pull. We can either stop emitting in the first place, or, and, we can pull carbon out of the sky and store it somewhere ideally permeate, the carbon that we already emitted. Ish, by 2050, we are going to have to be doing between 2 and 20 gigatons every single year um, of carbon removal. We'll call it 10 for simplicity, um, but that is a huge, huge volume of carbon removal every year, and the world is very behind um, in achieving that, that scale. Um, over the next 30 years. So carbon removal, I sort of think about as as the second of two big levers, both of which are really important, and both of which we are as are, a are world pretty far behind on. Part of the idea with Stripe's initial million-dollar commitment was to say, all right, in order to hit this 10, 10 gig a ton goal by 2050, we need more low-cost, high-volume solutions to hit that goal. So we're going to spend a million dollars and the idea was, can we um, help accelerate more technologies down the cost curve and up the volume curve with this million dollars? And um, kind of two things happened once once we made that announcement. One, we got a lot of feedback from the carbon removal committee uh, community, which mostly is indicative of the fact that this entire sort of carbon removal ecosystem is really starved for capital because um, a million dollars shouldn't shouldn't raise raise eyebrows. The second thing that happened was. We got a lot of outreach from Stripe users basically saying, hey, you know, we've wanted to do something in climate for a long time, but we haven't because it's actually, you know, pretty time intensive uh, to figure out what to do. We don't want to become carbon removal experts. Can you take our money and go spend it on our behalf? And so that sort of got us thinking, you know, hmm, maybe there's actually an opportunity here for us to go far above and beyond what, you know, Stripe's initial commitment uh, was and try to try to do something even bigger here. So the, this team was really born out of feedback that we got off of that initial commitment and has morphed into what is now uh, what we call an emerging business at Stripe, where we're trying to make it really easy and compelling for our users to, to help combat climate change.
2: And maybe just to kind of add on to that, a little a little bit of context on kind of how, how Stripe got interested in climate and sort of what led up to the negative emissions commitment. So a, f- a few years back, I believe it was 2017, uh, Stripe sort of made a, a carbon neutral commitment and we purchased uh, landfill methane offsets for our full emissions at, you know, I think it was $9 a ton or so. At the time back then, that was a sort of, relatively relatively impressive thing for a, a, you know, at that time, much smaller company than than today's Stripe to do. And sort of what we were trying to kind of make the point of there was, this is a thing that even a relatively small startup can do. You don't need to be a giant company to do something on climate. And this is something that climate specifically is something Patrick and John have been interested in for for a number of years. And when we made our negative emissions commitment last year, that was sort of born out of, you know, what we learned from doing our offsets and what we learned about the, the negative emissions community and how we might be able to make make this into something kind of more impactful and more more specific to what we found being sort of the specific area we wanted to have impact on in climate, which is trying to build and demonstrate a market for carbon removal solutions specifically, which have been pretty like incredibly under-resourced. I, I've been at Stride for almost two years now and, and started working on climate last fall when we made our negative emissions commitment. And you know, one of, one of the things I learned pretty quickly was the, specifically on carbon removal, it's not just a lack of corporate purchasing. It's a lack of research. It's a lack of federal investment. You know, some of the most promising carbon removal technologies, for example, direct air capture and, and sort of surface mineralization, which we can, we can talk about what those are. Um, but, you know, just to sort of give you an example, those over the last 10 years have received like less than $20 million in, in U.S. federal research funding. And, you know, through some lenses, a million dollars isn't a lot for a company like Stripe. But sort of the point we wanted to make with the initial commitment was that, we sort of have a specific enough theory of change around negative emissions and around this sort of carbon removal area that needs accelerating that a like relatively small amount of money could actually do something quite useful there. Um, that's what we really wanted to make sure of before we started thinking about, you know, how could we potentially help our users with something here? Yeah, that's fascinating.
0: Thought experiment for, for you to pretend we're having this conversation, the exact same conversation in 2010 or, or even 2000. How would it be different in terms of our understanding of the field or understanding of, of what works or doesn't work or how certain things have, have played out? What could you imagine being, being different? I, either of you feel free to jump in.
2: I guess caveat being, I started learning about this in earnest last year after being sort of interested in climate on the side for for many years. So I think other people can maybe speak this a little better, but at a high level, I think one way to view sort of the climate, the world's perspective on climate and sort of more specifically what solutions get funded and attention and where the energy goes not like the literal energy, but where sort of like people's focus goes is, you know, the first IPCC report came out in, I believe the mid nineties, there's always been sort of huge error bars on sort of what is climate's trajectory, right. And so many degrees of freedom of what could change. And, you know, back in 2000, it was, you know, what is the energy system going to look like? How much are we going to shift to renewables? You know, back then solar was really expensive and not deployed at scale, Um, And there was like, so, so such huge error bars and sort of like, what is, what are the scenarios of human emissions Um, that, you know, there were many very potentially plausible scenarios at the time that would lead to, you know, 1.5 or 2 degree temperature target with no negative emissions, right? Like if we had done dramatic emissions reduction starting in something like 2000, we may not need this at all, right? I mean, we, we would potentially in the sense that like, it is a sort of fun fact about carbon is like, or carbon dioxide is like, it stays in the atmosphere, functionally indefinitely, like order of hundreds of thousands of years. So you'd need negative emissions if you wanna sort of take us back to pre-industrial levels, but it could have been the case in, you know, the 90s or 2000 that we got on an emissions trajectory that would have, you know, capped emissions at, you know, or capped emissions or put in policy in place such that we never got above, you know, 300 some PPM. And then this would be a very different conversation. Given that sort of we're at the trajectory we're on with, with emissions, we do need to do negative emissions today it's sort of, I think, been the case that for a while people have been optimistic that we wouldn't need it. That's just sort of no longer true.
0: Totally. And, and again, zooming out, staying on the sort of science stuff or the state of the, the situation, what are the major debates that you that you hear sort of experts having right now? I, I know there is a lot of alignment, but but uh, but more broadly, um, are there experts who are disagreeing over sort of implications of of what the the, the state of the situation is currently, or, or what what's causing the state? of of where we are, or are they disagreeing on implementation? Or or what are the sort of the interesting disagreements that that you find uh, in the field?
1: I think
2: there's different ones at different levels, right? I mean, like, historically, there was, I don't know if it's really appropriate to characterize a disagreement, but there was sort of a perspective that, you know, research and application and, you know, procurement of negative emissions was potentially harmful, because it was, you know, potentially a moral hazard that would sort of give people an ouch to do emissions reduction, and that, you know, that would end up with a net, you know, negative climate impact. I mean, we believe that that is sort of not how this works. And there's been sort of significant research to indicate that that is not actually how this works. Like we need both huge emissions reduction and significant negative emissions. But I think historically, one of the reasons why negative emissions has been a little slow to to take off has been this sort of concern around a moral hazard. I think you see analogies today between that and other climate interventions. Um, so that's sort of one sort of genre of disagreement. I think there are some negative emission solutions that have been proposed that, you know, are not the ones explicitly that we, we purchase from or that we plan to purchase from. Um, but that are, you know, backed by oil interests or are seen as, you know, a way to keep, uh, sort of fossil industries, uh, going at their current rate. So there's sort of that category of, of negative emission skepticism. Um, I think maybe zooming down a couple levels, uh, to sort of implementation questions. There, is, there are so many different, like at, at a high level, there's a handful of, of different approaches to, to remove carbon from the air and a handful of places that you, can, that you can put the carbon, right? And I think there definitely is sort of different scientists have different uh, sort of methodologies that they're most bullish on. Um, that's one of the reasons we're sort of taking this portfolio approach is we recognize that like we're kind of making bets on kind of the cost and innovation curves of these different technologies, and we recognize that we might not be right about all of the projects we purchase from or exactly which which of the approaches sort of pan out and do scale and do get low cost which is sort of why we're trying a number of them and we're sort of creating this basket so that we're sort of hedging each and sort of we're optimistic that long term as we build out this portfolio some of them will end up working and sort of we're we're purchasing from these companies we're not you know at this point making making something like venture investments so we're a little more technology agnostic and it's really about sort of from a sort of holistic, almost like how you deploy like a research program view, how can we just push negative emissions forward and make it, you know, more likely that the world gets, you know, sub hundred dollar a ton permanent carbon sequestration and storage within the next, you know, 10 years, which by basically any emissions reductions trajectory at this point, it looks like we're really going to need.
1: The one thing to add to, to that second point that that Ryan made is like, I, w- I almost would summarize this as a lot of the debate ends up being an either or debate rather than a yes and debate. And like, when we think about how are we going to hit that 10 gigaton, like it's two to 20 gigatons per year, starting in 2050 ish, um, call it 10 for simplicity in order to hit that scale of carbon removal, you know, we aren't going to get there with just nature-based solutions. Like we will run out of ara- arable land um, uh, eventually. And we're probably not going to get there with just te- technological solutions. So a lot of the debate I think that we see right now is should it be just nature-based solutions or just technology, technological solutions? And the answer is we're going to need, as, as Ryan mentioned, we're going to need a portfolio approach in order to hit that target.
0: So, say, say more about the portfolio approach in terms of what's your sort of request for action and what would you like to see others, uh, you know, uh, other companies or other organizations uh, uh, do or experiment with?
1: So I think that there, you can sort of answer that question in two ways. Like we can think about Carbon removal generally is as having as like decomposing into supply and demand. So the supply side is all the companies that are actually doing the carbon removal. It's planting trees, it's soil, it's direct air capture, it's enhanced weathering. The demand side is who is actually paying to pull the, that those tons of of CO two out of the air and store it somewhere. And we need more action on both sides. So uh, I, I would say on the supply side, the most quote unquote mature technologies right now are nature based trees naturally pull carbon out of the air and store that uh, and, and, and store it. Soil is more advanced than something like, you know, direct air capture or enhanced weathering on the supply side. The need is we need more, more solutions that have the potential to be low cost and high volume by 2050. And so you know, we think about this as like a top of funnel problem. Like we need more more shots on goal with technologies that have the potential to scale to the size of the problem and hit, you know, permanence targets, cost targets, and volume targets. On the demand side, the, the problem is a, is a little bit different. So this is going to be a massive market um, at, at this sort of 10 gigaton scale. And part of the problem right now is that demand side is, you know, functionally non-existent, right? This would be like, You know, if you're thinking, Eric, if you're thinking about investing in a company, one of the first questions that you would ask is, is anybody going to buy the product that this company actually sells? And part of the problem in carbon removal is we don't have enough buyers who are actually paying to pull that carbon out of the air and store it somewhere. And so the request on the demand side is we have to make that market. Like because of this sort of lack of demand side market, the whole ecosystem is in a way a bit stuck in the mud. Like investors don't want to pour in capital because they're not sure anybody's going to buy it entrepreneurs are a little hesitant to get into it because are they going to have to be raising donations for the entirety of their existence? This whole sort of ecosystem is stuck. So if you are, if you have the potential to purchase those tons, I think we need a lot more capital on that side. And then on the supply side, we need a lot more innovation um, to help drive to the volume and cost that we are ultimately going to need to hit that 10 gigaton target.
2: Yeah, Nan, I think, I think it's a great point. I mean, to the to this sort of this whole ecosystem being stuck thing, there's sort of an additional layer of kind of complexity and leverage on top, which is the fact that like the prices of this technologies, of these technologies today are, you know, often hundreds of dollars per ton, which are just too much. And we sort of, part of the reason is this sort of nasty cycle where there's not buyers, partly because the approaches are currently too expensive, but they're not getting any cheaper because there's no buying and there's no technology learning, right? Like if you look at what happened with solar, you know, after significant federal investment in, in the 70s and 80s and, you know, our own manufacturing, Chinese manufacturing and so on, you know, over a few decades, solar got 10,000 plus times cheaper uh, than, than it was sort of in, in, the, previous, in the previous time. Um, negative emissions hasn't done that yet. Like it has not iterated down that cost curve yet. And part of that's a lack of federal investment. Part of that additionally is sort of a lack of a clear commercial market. So that's, that's really what we're, what we're trying to do here, both with our money and sort of the, the, what we want to enable for our users is just, you know, the, you know, federal, federal side is one thing, but to really iterate these technologies down a cost curve, like we don't know how cheap some of them can get. And, For the world's climate plan, like if you look at the world's climate portfolio, like we need to know that soon, right? Like in terms of understanding how to allocate large amounts of resources towards these different approaches in that portfolio, right? So like to to your question earlier about where is there disagreement, there is like genuine smart people disagreeing in the field about how cheap direct air capture can get from a physics standpoint, right? We don't know exactly how it can get how cheap it can get. Some projections put it under $100 a ton, some don't. And that's something that we would love to sort of help the world figure out faster uh, by by being a very early purchaser for those sorts of approaches. You, you're, so you
0: guys are working on offsets and negative emissions now. What's the ultimate vision for Stripe Climate and what's the roadmap for getting there?
1: Yeah, so to date, we've spent a lot of our time figuring out, you know, first, how do we spend our own money effectively? And so a, a lot of the beginning of this year for us was, really learning learning this field and learning the basics and talking, finding experts, talking to experts, going through that, that process ourselves with our own million dollars. Now we're really turning our attention to how can we, how can we, you know, take that million dollars and 10 exit or a hundred exit and really try to build out that market for negative emissions. Stripe has, you know, we, we build economic infrastructure for the internet. We have a million plus businesses um, that we work with and that we serve. Many of whom actually want to do something to help fight climate change, but they don't because it's hard to figure out what to do and they have a business to run. So really what we're focused on now is how can we make it really easy and really compelling for these million plus businesses to make a really big impact. And, and that is more of a, so we're putting on our product hats and our engineering hats and, and trying to figure out what can we build to facilitate that across all the businesses that Stripe
2: serves. (laughs) And if you think about Stripe's core products, right, in some sense, we're sort of like in the business of making really useful abstractions for people who run internet businesses, and sort of encapsulating a lot of the complexity of, you know, the international payment system away from them so that they can focus on running their business. And one of the things we're really excited about is the fact that, you know, in some sense, some of the ways that the companies can can support carbon removal are kind of shaped like that, where there's sort of a complex portfolio of projects, there's, you know, often very specific science expertise needed. And we're sort of exploring how we can kind of nicely encapsulate that for them and make it really, really easy for our businesses to, to make a, a powerful commitment.
1: One more thing to, to add here. Every business shouldn't need to become an expert in climate science in order to make an impact. That's true for consumers too. And I think if we're, if we're successful, a business who would have normally not done anything in the climate space is able to do something really quickly, really powerfully, and really easily. Um, and, and so, if a dream, I think, would be that it becomes the norm for businesses to to roll out high impact climate programs.
0: Say more about your time spent learning the field in terms of what was most surprising or most you know non intuitive that you discovered.
2: Um, I'm, I'm happy to kick this one off and Nan happy to please, please jump in with, with yours as well. I think my perspective on this is like, I got really obsessed with, with, with negative emissions last fall after, after Stripe's initial commitment and was fortunate to sort of in the, in this position, I think potentially get more time, you know, actually face to face with experts than, you know, I would have been able to just if I was sort of an independent researcher in this field, uh, a handful of takeaways, firstly, like, this is just genuinely so fascinating. Like I may have just been in software for too long, but like we're talking about moving like massive physical systems and in, in negative emissions, we're talking about everything from policy to biology, to geology, to uh, material science, to ecology, to like sort of, it's such a range of different of different topics and focus areas. And there's like basically whatever area you're interested in, there's sort of a jumping off point. And I've just had a ton of fun with that and learning that breadth has been I think very unique for me compared to experiences I've previously had at at startups or in in product or in software. A specific takeaway is our sort of hand-wavy initial thesis was that negative emissions was under-resourced and interesting, but like, holy crap, like for three of the four projects that we purchased from, uh, we were actually their their first customer um, for the negative emissions. And that's pretty crazy. Like one of these companies, for example, you know, came out of Stealth for our purchase, but a number of them had been around for a little while now. And if you take something like enhanced weathering, which is potentially a very promising technique, as far as we know, no one had actually purchased an actual field trial of enhanced weathering before. Like this has been in their literature for for a number of decades now, but no one had actually tried it in the field. Um, And I think sort of most surprising and unexpected to me was the fact that there just like were low hanging things like that in this area that, you know, genuinely very smart people have been working very hard on for a number of years. I just, I don't know. I just kind of wasn't expecting that.
0: Totally. One thing that you mentioned that you wanted to do is make sure that you buy negative emissions at any price, irrespective of how financially valuable a technology is today. Talk more about why that's important or, or just how that makes sense for, for Stripe more broadly.
1: If we look at the target of where we need to be by 2050 and we, we, we try to figure out where are the big gaps, you, we want negative emissions that are high volume, low cost, easy to measure and permanent so our kind of theory of change here is that by purchasing these technologies early, we can help get them down the cost curve and up the volume curve so that by 2050, we have the, the solutions that we need to actually scale to the problem. And I think that you know, a lot of these new technologies don't actually, someone needs to push them sort of off, off the hill to start them rolling down that cost curve. And I think that you know this is not, totally dissimilar to, you know, how, how some of the big tech companies like Google approached renewable energy, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, saying, you know, we're going to buy renewable energy at a premium, knowing that over time, that's going to help accelerate it down the cost curve so that it is more economically viable um, in the long run. And we're, it's a bit of a similar mental model with, with the approach here, in, in terms of purchasing early. So, the, the idea is not that these, these technologies will always be expensive. We are looking for technologies that have the potential to be really low cost and high volume, even if they're not there today.
2: And, and the reason to add on to that, the reason we feel comfortable you know, purchasing it you know, hundreds of dollars per ton from these projects, and like, we, we don't even negotiate with projects on price at this point, is because we've sort of selected for projects that we, and our experts, feel like have the potential to actually get cheap and that our purchase will materially help them get cheaper um, instead of just sort of observing what happens.
0: Totally. What do you think is most misunderstood around either the, the, the way that you guys are going about it or just some of the problems we've been talking about in general? What do you, what do you think people don't fully get or, or or misunderstand or sort of have a red herring about? What are your thoughts there?
1: Stripe is not taking a equity stake in any of these companies. We are the customer rather than an investor. And I think that, that that's a seemingly subtle, but actually very important difference. We're not investing in these technologies right now. As we talked about earlier, we are quite literally the customer. We are trying to build a market for being the customer. And so it's a bit of a difference. So one of the the major problems as we talked about in the in the field today is that the demand side of this market is really small. And we need so much more capital on the demand side in order to scale this market to the size that it actually needs to be. I think that's a that's a key distinction um, that that maybe most folks um, don't always grok initially. Brian, anything to add? Um, Yeah. I mean,
2: maybe one other thing, and and we've, we've talked about this a lot, but it's sort of the idea that in a lot of sort of traditional, in the world of traditional carbon offsets or sort of traditional carbon credits, all tons are sort of, are treated very similarly. And the only thing that differs is price. And in practice, that's, just not how any of this works. Like a ton of carbon has so many different traits when you're storing it, right? You have things about permanence, you have things about monitoring, you have things about potential for leakage, you have sort of things about, you know, is that ton giving you leverage against some cost curve of some new technology? What's the land and energy requirements to move that ton around? And, you know, all tons aren't, aren't created equally. And one of the things we've really tried to make explicit here is sort of the traits of tons that we care about being this permanence, this potential to get cheaper over time and only focus on that. I think one thing that that can be difficult in sort of a traditional carbon neutral lens is that if you have a certain number of tons that you need to sort of neutralize, in practice, you probably have some budget for that. And you're probably going to get pushed towards the the sort of less expensive tons side of the market, you know, the things that are five, ten, twenty dollars today. And what's often the case is in that five, ten, twenty dollar price, it doesn't really take into account for the fact that it may only be, you know, a few decades of permanence in a natural system, or it may have significant land use requirements or significant energy requirements. So for us, we really tried to break those traits out and look at look at these tons more holistically, which is why we're purchasing more expensive tons. But that's also why we don't have sort of a, a tonnage target like we've seen uh, some folks do uh, as they try to get carbon neutral. And we think this approach allows us to sort of get more value for our dollar even towards that kind of leverage down the cost curve point, even if we're buying less tons today.
0: Let's go deeper into your carbon removal work. Maybe talk more about why it's, so far behind what, what, where it needs to be, what, what bottlenecks are there, and then maybe talk about, or let's go more into details of the specific purchase to, uh, purchases you guys have, have made from you know from which companies and,
2: and how you're thinking about that. One one other sort of bottleneck and important distinction, Eric, to, to your point is is another thing about our purchases is that uh, they're recurring. So we're doing this commitment every year, and it's not just you know a one off uh, sort of pile of cash, the idea is to sort of build a recurring relationship with, the, with these and additional companies and be recurring customers. And, you know, you know, from venture world, a recurring customer matters a lot more than a, than a one-time purchase. And to sort of spurring these technologies down the cost curve, we think that kind of recurring investment and recurring commitment is, is really important. In terms of the specific purchases, our first uh, round here purchased from four companies, Project Vesta, which is a nonprofit, Charm Industrial, which is a U.S. company, uh carbon cure which is a canadian company and Climeworks, which is a swiss company Um, and we're really excited about all of them for for different reasons and we think they sort of do a good example of showcasing the range of technologies that we're going to need to to build out this this comprehensive removal portfolio um so i'm happy to just sort of jump into each one briefly eric and we can we can elaborate on kind of whatever you want here yeah please do Uh, yeah so first off uh and speak about uh carbon cure i actually just got the phone with them um Really, really interesting company. They make uh, concrete uh, that sequesters carbon as it cures. Um, so some people don't know that uh, cement production, which is different than concrete, but, you know, an ingredient in concrete, cement production creates more than twice as much uh, CO2 emissions as all of aviation. Like aviation is like 2 3% of global emissions. Cement and steel is like around 10 or slightly over 10%. So there's this whole category of massive industrial emissions that sort of are often kind of out of sight, out of mind for people. Carbon cure is really cool because they, they've they invented a technology that passes a pure CO2 stream back into the concrete as it cures. So it mineralizes in the concrete. You end up with sort of little pockets of calcium carbonate, um, which, you know, that calcium carbonate carbon came from, from CO2, and it makes the concrete even stronger. So this is really cool. Long story short, we were really excited about them because – there, there's this thing called co2 utilization there's sort of sequestration utilization there's like a circular economy thing that people talk about but the idea here is that instead of just pumping it into the ground by sort of utilizing it in a product where it's actually permanently stored they are able to get sort of much better economics um, than than some other companies might so people will you know pay for this concrete um with the co2 in it and uh that both stores a co2 and sort of Pushes this more sustainable concrete through more markets. Um, so we're sort of subsidizing down their costs with our purchase. Um, I'll give a quicker quicker overview on the other ones. Uh, Charm Industrial invented a, a new process and sort of came out of stealth to to accept our purchase, uh, where they make something called bio oil and they inject it into the ground into sort of permanent storage deep underground. Bio oil is like a thing you can do where you take you take biomass, you take you know trees or plants or farm waste or whatever you do something called pyrolyze it, which you heat it up in this special process. You end up with this sort of goopy oil. It's not really useful for energy degeneration. It's it's pretty dirty. But what you can do is that preserves a significant amount of the carbon in the biomass and you can inject it underground and store it permanently and safely. Um, so instead of kind of leaving the forest up where the biomass, where it just takes up space, um, is you know could get burned down, could get cut down, could decompose, anything like that, is there sort of a way to make biomass carbon capture permanent, which we think is really cool because permanence is something we care a lot about. Uh, Climeworks is a direct air capture company, uh, which basically means big fans and some complicated chemistry to suck CO2 just straight out of the air and then inject it geologically. Again, sort of this geologic injection thing. It turns out there's a bunch of space underground, like a, really a mind blowing amount of space to put CO2. Um, so in Climeworks' case, they inject it, uh, into basaltic rock formations next to a geothermal power plant in Iceland. There are photos. It is really cool. Um, so that's what Climeworks does. Um, that's the thing I mentioned where I said sort of direct air capture is a thing where there's open debate about how cheap it can get. You know, they'd be a good example of that. And we're excited to see how they, how they become less expensive over the years. And then finally, Project Vesta, which is a nonprofit in the U S uh, this, this one's a little bit out there, but the idea here is they use a process or they sort of help accelerate a natural process called carbon mineralization. This is often referred to as enhanced weathering. The super, super basic description is, The vast majority of Earth's carbon uh, is in rocks and minerals. It's in stuff like limestone, calcium carbonate. You know, some percent is in biomass. You know, 50 plus percent is in just rocks in the Earth's crust. And the Earth's natural carbon silicate cycle over geologic timescales pulls carbon out of the air and sequesters it in rock. What these sort of enhanced weathering approaches try to do is make that go faster enough that it can be sort of material for the amount of carbon on, you know, decade long timescales. So Project Vesta, they pull out this rock uh, called olivine, uh, which is a, a particular mineral that happens to do this sort of carbon capturing more quickly than, than others. Um, they grind it up, they put it on tropical beaches, um, and then the wave action on those beaches grinds it smaller. Uh, this reaction scales with surface area, it pulls the CO2 out of the water and sequesters it as sort of permanent bicarbonate minerals in the, in the ocean. So it's it's pretty wild. I think people often don't think about you know rocks when they think about places to put carbon. But uh, if we can make the reaction happen fast enough, rocks are a really great place to put carbon.
0: That's awesome. Thanks for that, that overview. I want to zoom out a little bit and focus on the audience of uh, venture capitalists here. How do you think, or how do you advise investors to consider the, the this this sort of uh, field, and how sh- how should they be thinking about it?
1: Yeah, I think one of the questions that came out of the last clean tech wave in 2012 was, you know, is VC really the right asset class for clean tech and for, for climate tech? If we zoom out and think about what the world is going to need to do to stop climate change, so many of the solutions are infrastructure. It's hardware. It's hard science. It's stuff that tr- traditional VCs don't usually dabble uh, sort of get into um, as much, and, and, and the economics don't always work as well for, for, for venture capital. I think that there, you know, one interesting area for, for VCs to, to poke around in, I think, is on the demand side of how do we actually create this market, and what are the different mechanisms by which we can accelerate the market de- development on the demand side. I'd love to see VCs think a bit more about how can we creatively finance the kinds of solution that climate really, really needs? And are there creative ways that we can make capital work for hardware and hard sciences and infrastructure esque projects? Because that is where a lot of the need in climate is generally. And that is also true, particularly on the supply side of carbon removal. Um, so, like breakthrough capital, you know, they, they talk a lot about patient capital. They're still looking for for returns, but it's over a much longer time horizon. That's a really good model for a lot of climate shaped problems because, you know, hard science is hardware, et cetera. It takes more time. But if we're gonna solve climate, we have to sort of recognize that you can't ignore the fact that you need infrastructure, or hardware, or hard science sciences because this is you know not entirely but largely a physical problem. Um so I I guess I in summary I sort of put I'd put the question a bit back on on VC and, and sort of say can we creatively think about how to sort of modify or edit how we fund startups that you know scale to and and fit the shape of the problem. Ryan anything to add there? I think
2: there are interesting vehicles that are sort of maybe you know a couple notches over from traditional VC, um, but that are, I mean, the, the sort of term in the field, is like project finance, right? It's like project and utility finance. Generate capital is a good example of this. I think breakthrough potentially does some of this. I mean, I think the news broke today, Carbon Engineering, a very large direct air capture company, uh, you know, just just uh, got got financed for a large project in, in Texas. And that was a joint venture between Occidental, an oil company, and another uh, sort of large fund that isn't really a traditional venture fund. But sort of a lot of these projects are, I think there's more, maybe two stages that VC could be useful at. Firstly, sort of, similar to the sorts of projects we purchased from, right? A few of them actually have actually raised a VC round since our purchase. And we have some indication that sort of our purchase to help those VCs get comfortable that there's a market here, which like we feel awesome about and is very much the point. So that's sort of one thing is like support these technologies uh, and help them find a market. And then as they start growing and scaling, it becomes instead of, you know, small lab scale, bench scale, you know, prototype, it becomes multi hundred million dollar large physical infrastructure projects. And sometimes the sort of traditional project finance, even hedge funds can come in and finance those. The IRR is pretty clear with a large infrastructure energy project like that. Um, That's sort of like a whole world of financing that's not necessarily traditional VC. But I think there's a lot of room for VC to potentially help get projects to the stage where they, you know, are building large enough infrastructure that they can then sort of blend into those bigger capital markets. But I definitely think there's a gap in between right now. And I think that's kept a lot of projects on, on the starting block. And partly why we're trying to demonstrate a market is to help bring in and demonstrate the need for other private capital.
0: Totally. VCs have been burned on sort of, uh, you know, clean tech in the mid, mid, mid-2000s. To, to whatever extent you've, you've looked into what, what happened there, why should VCs be more excited about opportunities now than they were, you know, a decade ago or a bit over when, uh, when the clean tech bubble occurred?
2: I have a couple thoughts on this, and Nan, feel free to jump in. I mean, so this is an area I've, I know a little bit about, but certainly not not an expert. Um, from, from what I can tell, like, in, yes, in some sense, VCs were quite burned. Like, they had theses that were reasonable, and then the companies they picked that fit those theses didn't work out. But if you zoom out a little bit, like the idea that solar and wind would get cheap and start, you know, taking ground from coal and natural gas, like, true. It is happening today. The timing might've been off. It didn't happen necessarily at the, at the time when we talk about the clean tech bubble. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of really interesting things that may not have been caught up in sort of those, those theses and those VCs at the time, but we've seen, you know, huge growth in advanced nuclear, huge growth in like even fracking, for example, was around the same time as the clean tech bubble. And as far as I know, it wasn't really something that Silicon Valley VCs were in, but if, you know, if instead of sort of the theses they had around the clean uh, of clean tech at the time, they would have also invested in, say, some fracking companies, those would have done great. And I think the the point being, like, it's just needs to continue to be a broader and broader portfolio approach, right? Like, there is room for these technologies, and there is room for them to scale. It's, it's hard to predict, and we may need to sort of cast a wider net going forward. But I don't think that that, those failures sort of actually make sense to then write off the whole category because you could just draw the bounds of the category differently
1: one of the things that feels different now from you know 10 or 15 years ago is the world is sort of generally coming to realize how massive this climate problem is and how urgent it is that we solve it we will all you know see the effects in you know we're already seeing effects but this is going to get really you know visible over the next 50 years. And I think that there's a general trend of people taking that more and more seriously. To solve it, you know, again, there's going to be huge businesses that get built, whether it's on the energy production side or transportation or buildings. Like, there are massive, massive businesses to be built in the U.S. and all over the world. And so, you know, in that sense, <clears throat> I think that the the need is there, the motivation is increasingly there, um, hopefully the policy will be increasingly there as well, all of which I think generally bode well for VCs and entrepreneurs who are trying to to chip away at this problem. These challenges continue to be hardware, they continue to be infrastructure, they continue to be you know higher capex needs that VC has normally you know shied away from a bit and you know uh, so, so I think that there are some things that are better but some of the challenges are still exist and the best case scenario, I think, is that we sort of stare those challenges in the face and we figure out how we can modify, like, to do all those things, we are going to need so much capital and so much money. So it's not, be, and there's, again, huge businesses to, to be built, but, like, we need to sort of match the, the capital needs with the kind of problem that we have. There are some things working for us and there are still some existing challenges and we, we sort of need to, to look at those both in tandem.
2: Maybe to give a, drive a specific example here, like at a high level, we're talking about is like, I built a big carbon sucking machine that pulls carbon out of the air and sticks it underground. And, you know, it cost me a hundred million dollars in CapEx to build a thing and $10 million a month to run it after that. And like, we all can agree that we need to take the carbon out of the air, but like genuinely who's going to pay for the CapEx and who's going to pay for me to run it every month. And the elephant in the room there is kind of policy. Right. Like this is, you know, textbook a commons problem. And we can try to rally private companies as best as we can to, you know, in our case, probably contribute to the, you know, $10 million a month. I need to run my thing. I need someone to pay me for the carbon side of the equation. And, you know, potentially traditional finance can come in and and, and front the capex. But at a high level, like if we're serious that this is a global problem that we're genuinely taking seriously and we all agree that this needs to happen. I think we need to see policy, whether it's, you know, price on carbon shaped or otherwise, that will allow governments to come in and just like we're trying to do among private companies, sort of be the market and be the demand. And that's really what's what's going to be necessary to make this scale. Totally. Talk a little bit about
0: how the team is structured within Stripe. I think you guys are only, you know, four four people. So talk about how you, uh, team building philosophy.
1: Yeah. Stripe is a history of incubating new products and ideas with these kind of small independent SWAT teams. And we are, you know, a, a recent example of that. So, um, you know, one of the things that made me really excited about this opportunity at Stripe is that it's, it's being run as a product team rather than kind of more traditional CSR initiative. Um, that's not usually where climate sits within a company. Um, it, it's usually a bit more orthogonal to, to the core, core product and, and users. Um, but we are, we are basically a, currently a team of four. Um, and you know, we are, the idea, sort of the, the idea that, that Stripe has here is um, creating new teams with a clear mission, with dedicated resources that are sort of partitioned off from the broader, broader company and, and the time and space to sort of figure out if there's a there there. Um, but, you know, again, this is a product team and, and we are ultimately trying to figure out how we can, how we can impact our core users. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that that is one of the things that, that makes this, um, a little bit different than how you might see climate work at other companies.
2: I mean, Nan, I remember when, when you first came by the office last fall, when we were, we were, you know, looking to hire, hire someone else for this and we were first talking about it and like, you I think one of the first things you said was like, I don't like, I'm not interested in this if it's a CSR thing. And, like, the, the way that we've structured it this way, I think one, like, demonstrates that the, like, I'm, like, very grateful that Stripe is actually down to take this seriously and resource it. Like, I, like, really love and care about this problem. And knowing that we have an environment where we can, like, actually do work on it that's going to be taken seriously and we're going to get the resources for it is, is really huge. And I think the side effect of that is, like, that trust is what, you know, makes someone like me feel comfortable with, you know, joining and dedicating, like, all of our time to this team.
0: How, how do you think we can get more founders working on on uh, you know, in this space? What, what are bottlenecks that they have, or or what do you think might be effective?
1: I mean, I think that like again, one of the one of the big problems in this space is the lack of demand side. So our hope is that if we can demonstrate that there's a large, reliable market for carbon removal, then there will be more founders, more scientists, more entrepreneurs who are excited to start something in this space because they they're not going to have to be raising donations for, you know, for in perpetuity. Um, that's, that's definitely one of the things that we, we hope to see. I, yeah, I
2: think along with that, there's also this, just like, we, we we really do have a sort of giant science project we need to execute. If we're, if we, as the world are serious about, you know, limiting warming to something like two degrees. Um, and sort of the, I mentioned this earlier, but kind of the the breadth and different skills required to actually pull this off are just really massive. And I think there are people like, I think tech is like an okay place to transition into working on carbon removal. Coming from physics is really important. Coming from chemical engineering is really important. And I think there's sort of room for other fields to sort of produce founders in this, in that like, I don't know, sometimes it's a software problem, but not, I don't know about the majority of the time. And I'm just like really curious about how we can sort of like, help spur founders from fields that aren't kind of like steeped in Silicon Valley, steeped in like easy, quick scale, low replication cost style projects. Because a lot of these just aren't that. That's
0: uh, a perfect place to, to wrap. Uh, Ryan, Ann, thank you so much for, for coming to the podcast. For people who want to go deeper and learn more about your efforts and see where they can contribute, uh, where might you point them?
1: You can follow us on Twitter um, and we'll be we'll be sharing more shortly. You know, Feel free to reach out at stripe.com.